0: welcome back welcome back everybody to killer babes i'm katie and i'm kirby and we're your hosts for the evening or the morning or the afternoon anytime you'd like well this is episode number 58 this is a big one Mm -hmm. our season finale part one of our season finale of part three part one of three correct So this is going to be part one. Next week, part two, because that's how numbers work. (laughs) Yeah, good job. (laughs) Uh, Duh. And then part three, we're going to have an interview about the case regarding case as well. So a big three part season three finale. Mm
1: -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. It's good stuff. Wow. We're excited to bring this to you.
0: Yeah, for sure. This is one that we've been wanting to do forever. It's one I've been wanting to do forever. It's been on the list. But honestly, it's just been so daunting For me to think like think about like looking into it because there's so much that goes with it. It's a it's a huge case. There's a lot to look into. And I knew that. And I'm I guess I'm just lazy. So I was like, let's just put it off. But finally we got around to it and I'm very happy that we did. I feel like I've been thinking about this case for like months now. Yeah, like it gets to you. It gets to you. And we we've been working on it over a while too. So it's just like something I've been like just think you start to get like obsessed with it like everyone else about true crime obsession. But yeah, it's going to be pretty long, which is why we split it up into two. I think it just kind of has to be like, if we're doing any kind of justice, it's just going to end up being kind of long. And even these two episodes, I feel like are going to maybe be a little long. We'll see, but we think we just have to jump into it. Cause there's a lot to cover. So this is part one of Mara Murray. Um, we're just going to jump right into it. On the evening of February 9th, 2004, Mara's car crashed on Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. Her whereabouts remain to this day unknown, but her disappearance has made international headlines. And her story is one of the most followed missing persons cases throughout the world. This case in particular has gained a lot of notoriety there's a lot of details to this case so we're gonna be breaking it up like we said into three parts part one we're gonna take you through what happened before the disappearance part two we'll discuss the crime scene and what happened afterwards and then for part three we are interviewing Julie Murray more Murray's sister so that's gonna be part three so you really got to stay tuned for all three parts to get the full story So it was the evening of February 9th, 2004, in Haverhill, New Hampshire. This is the White Mountains region in New Hampshire in February, so there's snow on the ground. The temperature on the night of February 9th was actually fairly mild for that area, mid to high 30s, although there's been some different reports on the temperatures. Faith Weston, a resident of Haverhill, heard a loud noise outside her house. She walked over to her kitchen window and clearly saw a car that had crashed into a tree, is what she thought. This was on Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. At 7.27 p.m., Faith Westman called police and stated that there had been an accident near her home and that a car was stuck in a ditch. Fire and EMS were dispatched at 7.42 p.m. The first officer, Officer Smith, arrived on the scene at 7.46 p.m. When the officer pulled up to the crash site, he noticed that the car, still in the ditch, was facing west in the eastbound lane. The car was locked, but the driver was gone. When Faith Westman witnessed the aftermath of the crash that night, that was the last known sighting of the driver, Maura Murray. So now to kind of give you some background on who Maura is. And by the way, this is pretty much all coming from uh, mauramurraymissing.org, which is the family's kind of website blog um, dedicated to Maura. So we're just taking all that info and bringing it to you now. Maura Murray was born on May 4th, 1982 in Brockton, Mass. She was the youngest daughter of Fred Murray, who was a medical technician, and Lori Murray, who was a nurse. Her siblings included her older brother, Fred Jr., and sisters Kathleen and Julie, and younger brother, Curtis. Mara grew up in Hanson, a small suburb of the South Shore of Massachusetts. The Murray family could have been described as a normal working class family. At age six, her parents divorced. She was active in her local community where she became known for her kind heartedness. Mara also became very well known for her athleticism. She was a standout student athlete from Hanson Mass who some would say was an overachiever. She was active in nearly every sport, including competitive AAU basketball, which allowed her to travel all over New England as a teenager. A fierce competitor, she con- consistently finished in the top tier of runners in the state of Massachusetts and broke several long-standing school records. Selected as a Boston Globe All-Scholastic and Cross-Country, Maura qualified for the U.S. National Scholastic Outdoor Championships in the two-mile as a sophomore in high school in 1998, finishing 33rd in the country. She graduated at the top of her class at Whitman-Hanson Regional High School and had her pick of colleges, both academically and athletically. However, she accepted a congressional nomination from the late Senator Edward Kennedy and joined her sister, Julie, at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Morris started at West Point in August of 2000. She excelled in the military and in the academic program at West Point. She established herself on the cross-country and track teams. It was her second year at West Point when Morris decided the military was not for her, so she left West Point halfway into her sophomore year. And she transferred to the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where she decided to pursue a career in nursing.
1: In reality, Mara may have been asked to leave West Point, or at least shown the door. According to reports, Mara did get into some kind of trouble at West Point around August 2001. She had violated the school's code of conduct. Now, if you don't know what West Point is, West Point is... A military academic... I mean, it's a college,
0: but it's a military school, right? So... And it's very strict. It has very strict rules. So
1: violating the code of conduct would be anything from alcohol consumption to leaving the campus without alerting anyone. It's way more strict than, like you said, a regular college. Right. But according to Mara's old roommate at West Point, and this was reiterated during our interview with Julie, Hmm. Mara may have almost been kicked out because she was found stealing makeup at the commissionary at Fort Knox. Right, which is kind of
0: ironic because Fort Knox is, like, a very strict, like, military base. And
1: she decided to steal from Fort Knox, which is, like, wow. It's locked up. Yeah. Mara told her roommate that she regretted it and that she had only stolen maybe, like, five bucks worth of makeup. And Julie had said it was, I think she said lip gloss. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't a lot. According to MaraMurrayMystery.com, an honor investigative hearing was convened, which was an indication they had enough evidence against her to, quote, take it to trial before the cadet advisory board. Now, this is kind of like a trial of your peers, so it's not a trial of the school board. Right. I think this is pretty common to have, like, a peer thing. Yeah, my college had it.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was kind of like that. And it was definitely way more laid back because it was... Like, Joe from your campus. Right. In this case, maybe not so much because it's West, West Point, Point. But, right. but yeah, it's it's not, like, like the principal of the school or whatever. Right, exactly.
1: So, this all took place in 2001, and she was pulled out of class about seven times to appear before the Honor Board, who recommended Mara be separated from the Corps of Cadets, and this was forwarded on up to the superintendent, who would then make the final decision by the end of January 2002. Mara remained at West Point for another semester before officially bowing out from West Point on January 2nd, 2002. So she decided to leave the school before the final decision was made. Right, right. So I think that kind of lends to... I, there's a lot of...
0: You'll hear about this and whenever you listen to a podcast or whatever or read about this case that she was like kicked out of West Point. But in reality... She left before that. She decided to leave before there was ever a hearing back from this... Whatever
1: board. So, yes, they may have already decided to kick her out or they may have decided to let her stay. Regardless, she left before the official decision came out. Yeah. It's important to note, too, and Julie talked about this with us that after two years at West Point, if you continue on with your schooling there, you are required to join the military for like X amount of years. Mm -hmm. So, it's honestly kind of common for students to decide, you know, military life isn't for me and leave after two years. Right. And Julie also mentioned that Mara did not like the military aspect of West Point as much as Julie had because she went there. Mm -hmm. She believes that Mara may have been better suited at, like, a Harvard or Brown type of school because she was very smart. She loved academics. She excelled in it. And she did receive recruiting letters from certain schools like that. Right. Yeah, I think it just kind of came down to she didn't – she
0: decided she didn't want to be in the military. And, yeah, like you said, I mean, if you you stay at West Point, you have to join the military, so –
1: who knows maybe certain people can do that
0: yeah i can't of course it's not for everyone i mean that's i wouldn't be able to either no (laughs) i mean and it's not to say like she wasn't good at it or whatever but i think she just decided it wasn't for her and maybe it was like an accumulation
1: of things like the perfect timing it's just time to bow out yeah
0: yeah julie kind of made it sound like she knew more i didn't kind of want to be there so for whatever reason i mean she just decided
1: to leave So like we said, I think a lot of people get tied up in this section, you know, they say this was the stealing, the start of it, you know, her bad, dark, yeah, her bad behavior. uh, Yeah. But um, adolescent stealing is actually way more common than people think. So consider this statistic from WebMD. Why does WebMD have stats about stealing? They have statistics on everything. It's not just for finding out (laughs) if you have cancer or not. Yeah. So about 23 million people in the U.S. steal from retail stores, which is one in eleven Americans.
0: That's oh, a, I, that's a I, lot. I would have thought it'd be well. No, that kind of seems right, I guess.
1: Yeah. So teenagers, 13 to 17, make up about seven percent of the U.S. population and account for 25 percent of all shoplifters arrested. That checks out. That checks out. 89 <laughs> percent of kids say they know other kids who have shoplifted, and 20 percent of adults who shoplift say they started stealing in their teens. Hmm. So if you've ever shoplifted before you may have said you know oh i don't know why i did it i just had the compulsion to do it or maybe you were with just a bad crowd or some teenagers who were dumb and stupid who were just like yeah you know what it'd be cool why don't you just slip that into your pocket See if it'd you can be do cool. it cool yeah be cool if you did it exactly or sometimes I be cool yeah <laughs> you don't want to be cool no so sometimes you know maybe you just wanted an item that you couldn't afford or weren't allowed to have in the past like makeup yeah And from education.com, there's a quote that says, as children move into the preteen and teenage years, the reasons why they might engage in stealing become broader and more complex. Many teens shoplift in the presence of friends out of a desire to impress others, as sometimes the teens that engage in the riskiest behaviors are the most popular with their peers. Some teens use stealing as a way to assert their independence from the world of adult authority. Teenagers may steal out of a sense of boredom, and a desire to seek excitement. Hmm. They may feel that stealing, along with other negative behaviors, is the only way to get attention from parents, or they may steal as a way to exact revenge on someone believed to have harmed them or treated them unfairly. Lastly, teens may simply steal for practical reasons, such as the desire to have a particular item that they want, but cannot afford, end quote. To note, Julie did say that she thought Mar stealing the lip gloss was maybe a cry for help. Mm-hmm. So take that with whatever grain of salt you will.
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes... It, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, she thought it was kind of a cry for help, maybe because she didn't like where she was at, and she just... I don't know.
1: Who knows? I mean, it's $5 of lip gloss. Like, it's not... Yeah, and she was a smart kid. Like, she wouldn't have... If she had gotten kicked out of because of this, she wouldn't have just dropped her future. If she really wanted to be in West Point and go on into the military, she wouldn't have risked it over... $5 yeah, like, are loss. we going to pretend that there's not
0: people doing worse that go into the military? Like, Yeah, right? Isn't that crazy? So we we can't really get hung up on this. Like, I, I feel like a lot of people are like, yeah, like you said, like, this is where it all begins. It's like, okay, well, I don't know. You just have to, like, know what's going on here. And it was $5 a little gloss, so.
1: Not that much. Yeah. During Mara's time at West Point, she met Army Lieutenant William Roush while they were both cadets at West Point. They actually met during her honor investigative hearing, during which he was on the advisory board, and she called him Billy, and he seems to now go by Bill, but they hit it off and they began dating, and Billy was a couple years older than her, but their relationship continued after he graduated and well into when Mara ended up leaving West Point. Mm -hmm. He was stationed in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and Mara had arranged to work at a hospital in Oklahoma over the summer so she could spend more time with him. She was also reportedly very close with Billy's parents, and she had stayed with his family in Oklahoma for a few summers. And there were talks that they might be engaged soon. I don't think there were talks that they were engaged, but I think there were talks that they wanted to be taking their relationship. Taking the next steps, sure. Which, honestly, I mean, if you're in a relationship with anybody, older people are like, oh, yeah, when are you guys getting engaged? Oh, yeah, it's about time. So that's true.
0: So that's all to set up the scene of Mars' time at West Point. And now after two and a half years at West Point, we're going to go into Mara's time at UMass. Um, so she enrolled at UMass Amherst in the spring of 2002, and she was enrolled as a chemical engineering student. So we're not messing around here. I mean, she's smart. And she, she did chemical engineering at West Point. At the beginning of the next semester in the fall of 2002, Mars switched into the nursing program at UMass. She very quickly was able to earn a coveted spot in the program, which is known for being a good program and highly competitive at UMass. Pulled straight from the undergrad UMass website, they state, quote, admission to the College of Nursing is highly competitive as we are limited by the availability of clinical placements for students. Acceptance to the university does not guarantee admission to the nursing major. The typical accepted student in the nursing major has a 4.1 GPA weighted and recalculated an average SAT score of 1360, and an average ACT score of 28. The approximate acceptance rate for nursing student applications is 12%. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean, they weren't lying. That's competitive. Very. Within just two weeks of starting her new semester, Maura was able to gain a spot in the academic program and also score a spot in their clinical rotations. Maura was actually transferring from chemical engineering major to a nursing major which I think that definitely helped launch her into that competitive position. She was enrolled in the nursing program as a junior, excelled as a National Honor Society member, and also ran cross country at the University of Massachusetts. On paper, I mean, it really did sound like she was a perfect student athlete. On November 3rd, 2003, Mara got in trouble again, this time for credit card fraud. According to documents from Amherst police, A female student at UMass discovered odd charges on her credit card statement. Someone had been using her credit card number to order takeout from Pinocchio's Pizza. She, of course, called the credit card company and then called Amherst police. She reported she was unsure if she had lost her credit card or if it was stolen. Then they contacted Pinocchio's, Domino's, and Papageno's, which are all places that that person had ordered from um, using her credit card number. And after checking their recent records, Pinocchio pizza managers found that the orders had been delivered to none other than Mara's dorm room. Shortly after this discovery, Mara actually tried to call the police or call the place and order another pizza with the credit card number that was reportedly stolen. So then they got her. Officers enlisted the help of the delivery man who would get Mara to sign the bill. Then when she signed it, the police approached her dorm room. It really sounds like a whole sting operation, to be quite honest. When brought in for questioning by the police at the Amherst police station, Maura said she found the credit card information from a used receipt. Maura admitted that she had used the credit card number illegally to order food, a few pizzas, and it all amounted to set just over $79. So it was $100 less than $100 that she had bought with this credit card number. She never actually gave a reason why. Um, she declined to give a ri- written statement to the court that explained why the credit card was used illegally at the time, but she did say she was sorry and she wanted to make a restitution payment for the purchases. The officer said her cooperation would be noted in the report. There is some confusion surrounding this incident because you know, a lot of you are probably thinking, well, when you get a receipt from a purchase you made with a credit card, it it doesn't state the entire credit card number on it. So she claimed that she found the receipt, it had the credit card number on it and that's how what she used to get everything. But, I mean, clearly for security reasons is why you don't have, like, a credit card number on a receipt. Like, that makes right. sense, right? But she claimed that the receipt had been thrown away and it had all the info she needed. So, I don't know. Some people think perhaps it was, like, an old-fashioned register that prints the entire credit card number. Because I guess sometimes old registers did that. Who knows? I don't know. Um, Mara wasn't arrested or anything. But police did take her photo. And she was put on probation following that incident. According to the police documents, the charges against Mora were going to be completely dismissed in February of 2004 if she managed to stay out of trouble. But that was the exact month and year that she actually ended up disappearing. And, you know, a little fraud tidbit here, because why not? Credit card fraud is the simplest and most common form of identity theft due to its simplicity to commit. In Massachusetts, under Section 37C of General Laws, for the misuse of credit cards, the threshold between a misdemeanor and felony starts where the value of the money, goods or services obtained in violation of this section exceeds $1200, so $1200. And she did not exceed that, it was under or it was less than 100. So, mm-hmm. it was a minor violation but she was put on probation for that. And while she was at UMass, uh, Maura, I actually heard she might have had a couple jobs, but one of her main jobs was a um, security job. So essentially, she sat by the front door in a dorm room and she checked IDs of every student who entered. After a certain hour, every time we entered our dorms, we needed to show the... I mean, I think every school kind of had to do this, where you have to show the security guard your ID.
1: We didn't. (laughs) You didn't? It was a small school. I mean, you didn't have to show. This was back in 2004, too. I know. That's crazy. Well, I mean, Amherst... I went to a small college. Amherst is a lot bigger. Yeah. Like, we're talking thousands and thousands bigger. So, I can see with the university. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I kind of thought every school did it, but maybe
0: not. Well... It wasn't, so it wasn't all day, too. It was after a certain hour. It was at, like, after 8 p.m. or something. I kind of forget what it was. After that hour, you had to show your ID to get into your dorm. And if you brought a guest, they had to be, like, signed in. So there was a record of them being there. Right. Interesting. That seems like a lot of work. You didn't have to sign a guest in? No.
1: That sounds so bad. Guests just showed up and stayed in the, what the dorms. What something happened? I don't know. Wow. I, I guess there's no constant contingency plan i don't know <laughs> that wasn't well thought out
0: but <laughs> i don't know like i feel like you would well, hey i don't know whatever yeah it was like a record of this person coming in when that way nope okay well there's a security person there in every dorm that means and there's a lot of dorms that, there's a lot of dorms in the US. so there's a lot of security people because they just have to sit there all night um honestly it always seemed like a pretty boring job, but it was a really easy way to make a few bucks in college, spe- especially if you're already a night person, because you pretty much have to, like, stay up all night. I remember the screen people, they were just always doing their homework or reading a book because you just have to sit there when people aren't getting checked in, so. Yeah, that seems like a nice job. Yeah, there was, like, time to do their homework and stuff and then get paid. woo Woohoo! woo Woo-hoo. Uh, Maura specifically worked at the Melville dorm, and she lived right next door to that in the Kennedy dorm and those are both located in the southwest and they're very close to each other.
1: With any missing persons case, it is important to see what happened before the disappearance and dive into who's involved and what may have been taking place during that time. Right? Cuz there's no crime
0: scene, there's no sus there's nothing. All you have to go on is what they
1: were doing before they disappeared. Yeah, what could have happened, what could have triggered it. Right. So we'll take you through the the couple of days beforehand. So Friday, February 5th, 2004, Mara makes a phone call on Friday evening to her sister, Kathleen, while she was on break from her evening campus security job. February 6th, 2004. In the early morning hours of February 6th at around 1 a.m., people notice that Mara's visibly upset. It was later alleged that Mara had received a phone call around this time that made her pretty upset, like, visibly upset to the point where she couldn't talk, she couldn't stay on the job, she wasn't checking people in. Her supervisor actually had to escort her back to her dorm, and so when asked what was wrong, all Mara could say was, my sister. The supervisor had been interviewed before and has said a little more about Mara's state that night and having to escort her escort her back to her dorm basically students were coming in and she was so upset that she was in a daze
0: yeah that yeah and I've listened to this um supervisor talk a bit in interviews and stuff and she was like literally she like couldn't talk more she was in a daze Mm -hmm. I came in asked her what was wrong she could just say my sister and as she was there like talking to more she noticed students coming in and more like wasn't checking her ID their IDs or anything so she was like well You're not doing your job. Clearly something happened, but, like, we can't have you be, here. like, you're not, this isn't working out. So she had to ask her to leave, but then she literally had to escort her back to her dorm room because she was so nervous for her. And she, like, she remembers even suggesting to Mora, like, you might want to talk to someone. Like, I don't know what's going on, but something's happening. You might want to talk to someone. Like, get a good night's sleep. She was like, I'm, I'm going to check in with you later. Like, it was clearly something was going
1: on that was big. Right. She just didn't know what it was at the time. So, we did get confirmation from Julie that the phone call that took place at 10 p.m. that night was between Mar and Kathleen. Kathleen was Mar's oldest sister. She was in and out of rehab a few times for alcohol abuse and was supposedly busted for growing pot in Vermont, which in 2021, we don't even blink an eye at that. No. But back in the early 2000s, it was not okay legally. Right. Kathleen claims that the conversation was related to her alcohol abuse and her fiancé had taken her to a liquor store. Like... Literally right after she had gotten out of rehab.
0: Yeah, and she, she said that in interviews before, so that's not, like, hearsay. But, yeah, she said literally on the way back from rehab, they went to
1: a liquor store together. So this is probably what made Mar so upset that night.
0: Yeah, that's what she thinks it is. I mean, that the, the timeline lines up, um, kind of. I mean, the phone call was at 10, and by the time the supervisor came and saw more it was around 1 a.m., but I just know that there's a lot of talk out there of like what happened to make her so upset. Like, what was the phone call? Was the phone call right at one? Was it on her? Whatever. Um, we know from phone records that she talked to somebody at ten. Julie said it was Kathleen, and that, that
1: that's the conversation. So, I mean, that that's a conversation that would make anyone upset. Definitely, so it, it, your sister just gets out of rehab and is having like a breakdown, and you're not there. You can't go and see her. Yeah, all you, you can, can do can't. is talk. There yeah, was no Facetime helpless. back then. That's true. So. Yeah, I wouldn't want to stay at my desk job either. My thoughts would be running through my head, like, oh my God, exactly. like, I hope she's okay. Like, oh, geez. Yeah, it, make, it makes sense that that would be. So uh, we, we think that's
0: the reason why she was so upset that early that morning. It's the same, all the same night, but.
1: Right. So about a half hour before Mara received this phone call on Friday, Saturday, there was a significant car accident that occurred on the UMass Amherst campus. A student, Patrice Vassi, was struck by a car and severely injured. Police found Petrie on the side of the road. He survived, but to this day he suffers severe head trauma. We're mentioning this now because there is something that will come back into play later when police are investigating Mara's car in the ditch off Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire, and more specifically investigating the inconsistent damage to her car. On Saturday, Mara's father, Fred Murray, drove up to meet Mara at UMass. They plan to look at used cars together and reportedly, he had $4,000 on hand, and they went car shopping because, according to Fred, Marr's car was not in good shape, and she definitely needed something more reliable. The car was about eight years old, which doesn't seem crazy, but it was acting up, and they didn't trust it to make significant drives, so from Amherst back home and back home to Amherst and so forth. Right. But to note, her car did make it from Amherst to Haverhill, New Hampshire on the night Mar disappeared. Which is a couple hours drive. Right. So it couldn't have been like
0: on the actual verge of breaking down. But maybe it was close. I mean, eight years is kind of like, it could go either way, I guess, after eight years.
1: Cause... Yeah, if you don't do like regular maintenance right. on the car, eight years, you're done. Right, but... right. So the fact that our car was in poor condition will definitely come back up later in the story when police are investigating the crashed car and interestingly mara's friends say they don't remember her car being in poor condition but when we spoke to julie she had been getting rides from her friends like all semester right so i don't know maybe her friends didn't bring it up or maybe they just thought like we're carpooling because we're going to the same place but
0: yeah i mean i think the friend maybe the friends that didn't know about the car problems weren't the same that she was having carpools with because those were kind of like Maybe yeah, other students, not so much friends.
1: Yeah, and also like I feel like people don't talk about that. It's yeah, it's like kind a hey, how you it doing? Like oh fun. yeah, my uh, my, I don't know, my car needs oil change. <laughs> yeah, it's not. I don't know. So there's different accounts saying that Mara was doing clinicals for her nursing program at UMass, and she'd either drive or carpool the long distances to the hospital. So it's kind of like a a switch between both.
0: Yeah, and that's, that was, yeah. I mean, the hospitals sometimes are far away that you have to go to. It's not just, like, next door. So sometimes you do have to drive far to get to these clinicals. So, I
1: mean, you do need a reliable car. Right, exactly. So Fred was down to try to get Mar a new car stat for reliable transportation. Right, like, part of the deal of being in the
0: clinicals was that basically they were like you need reliable transportation to do these clinicals because if you're not going to be doing it reliably like we can get someone else in here because everyone wants to be doing it so
1: she she needed a car that would get her there right which you would think if it's like a college program that they'd have a bus route or something for the kids
0: well i don't
1: don't, yeah it depends on i don't really know how far they were going i don't know According to Fred, they shopped for cars that day, but they did not purchase a car. And it was getting dark, so they went back to the Quality Inn, a nearby motel in Hadley. It's now Comfort Inn. Mara worked out, and then Fred and Mar headed out to eat at the nearby Amherst Brewing Company, ABC. I had the bit about Amazing Wings, because, uh, yeah,
0: I don't think you've ever been, but... No, I haven't. Amazing Wings. Really? Yeah, trust me.
1: Okay, good to know. Mm-hmm. One of Mara's friends, Kate, had finished her track meet, so they went to go pick her up, and then they went back to ABC for some drinks. Fred and Kate had a couple beers. Fred recalls Mara had one drink, a black Russian. Fred drove Mara and Kate to a liquor store so they could purchase some liquor for a party later that night. And according to an interview police had with Fred, Fred claims they went to Liquor's 44 with the two girls who were looking around for wine. And he remembers that he told them hurry up, and just pick something so they could get going. (laughs) Such a dad thing. Hurry up in there. Yeah, in there like one minute, hurry up. (laughs) Steps through the door, hurry up. (laughs) As a reminder, this is the day that Mara got an upsetting phone call while at work and Mara's friend that was with them at dinner doesn't recall Mara or her dad mentioning anything about the phone call or anything dealing with her sisters. Which would check out because it's a personal family matter and you probably wouldn't bring it up in front of
0: yeah. A friend. Yeah, I, I totally see how that wouldn't be something that would come
1: up with <laughs> your friend. Yeah, I get that. That would be awkward for them. Yeah. So that night, Fred didn't drive back home, and the plan was that after the liquor store run, Mar would drop her dad off at the motel for the night, and then she and the friend would take his car, which was a Toyota Corolla, back to the dorm and keep it there that night. Then she'd return his car to him the next morning.
0: Right, which seems a little odd, but I guess if you keep in mind that she... Th- Really thought our car was not that bad of a condition. Maybe he just said, you know, I'm here. My car's here. Right. We might as well drive that one back and, uh, yeah. I
1: don't know. And who doesn't love to drive their parents' car over their own unreliable one, right? I
0: mean, yeah. I, from what I heard, I think it was like a brand new car, too, like a, a new car. Yeah, this, so. I definitely want to I drive don't that. Know.
1: That night, Mara went to a dorm party with their friends, including the friend Kate, who had just gone to dinner with Mara and Fred earlier. Other students at the party later recount that Mara left around 3, 3 3.30 a.m. claiming she needed to return her dad's car to him. Now some witnesses also claim she left with a guy and others claim she left alone. So unreliable witnesses here. And we mention that only because it's really important to know every person Mara encountered during the last few days before her disappearance. If she did leave with someone, It is unknown to this day who he was or she was. And this was just the start of a very interesting night that spurred a series of unfortunate events.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, Also, I just want to kind of point out here a little more because this party, dorm party gathering, whatever you want to call it. It was kind of confusing. Yeah, and it seems to come up a lot. Like, it's one of those things of the case that everyone's like, what what is going on here? Like, this is kind of hazy, confusing, whatever. Yeah. So... There's like we've heard in different places it was a dorm party. There's so many people it was packed and people can't remember who was there. So there's like that like that accounts. Obviously people were like how many people can you
1: fit in a dorm?
0: Well that's the other thing is like or like some accounts are like it was jam packed. It couldn't have been jam packed, okay? Like they they don't let you have jam packed dorm parties where like. uh, you can't be all that crazy and I mean you do have to keep track of the guests like I said like you have to track guests in I think you could only have like four guests at a time or something. Yeah, that's why I was very like
1: restricted. Was it multiple dorms on one floor that just opened their doors and had parties? Definitely couldn't just like party out in the hallway.
0: Interesting. Okay. So, well, I mean again, it was 2004 like I I'm not just I can't say what was what was going on, but like other people are like, no, it was actually in a house. It wasn't in a dorm. That That's incorrect. But I think her friends maintained that it was in a dorm room. And because this whole thing was a little bit confusing, we reached out to Julie about it because we just wanted to see if she had any kind of clarification so that we could kind of say it correctly. So Julie reached back out to us and she said that it was her understanding that the party slash gathering um, was in Sarah alfieri's dorm room i think that's how you pronounce her name so sarah was one of more's good friends at umass um and apparently it was in her dorm room and julie says here that sarah told julie's dad or fred murray that she was asleep the whole time which julie said seems odd to me and that is odd (laughs) unless she was like literally passed out right i think that would be the biggest reason like i would think that kind of makes sense if you're literally blacked out passed out in your bed during this party which could happen it's college
1: I mean, not that it couldn't happen outside of college.
0: For sure, college. that could be what happens. But it is also like, well, that's convenient. You can't remember anything because you're right, sleeping. Right, right.
1: I don't know. Who knows?
0: That's what she said. And then Kate Markopoulos, who was another good friend of Mora's, She was on the track team with Mora, The one they went to dinner with. Yes, the one that went to dinner with her and Fred. Um, She was at the party too. Julie said, it, Julie did say that she thinks it is potentially important to know what went on here. She said supposedly there were three non-UMass guys there, too. I'm not sure where that info comes from, but apparently there were some non umass people, guys there. She said it's unclear slash unconfirmed that she left with a guy, but I definitely think that's possible in my opinion, Mm -hmm. is what Julie says. She said, I also never understood why she left the dorm to go to my dad's hotel. Maybe
1: she felt unsafe. I don't know., mm-hmm. because the original plan was that they would go back to Mars dorm and then in the morning, she'd drive the car back to her dad at the motel. So right. And I'm about to explain now what what actually happened, but, yeah, so Julie doesn't really
0: understand why she did leave and go back to the hotel, which i'm I'm gonna talk about now. But I mean, she said maybe she did feel unsafe. I don't know. Like, why wouldn't she just go back to her dorm room and also, it is kind of weird that like nobody remembers when she left first of all yeah. or if she did leave with someone. I understand that yeah, everyone was probably trash drinking. I get it. And you know, over time you forget things, but also like this was 2 nights before she disappeared. Right. And
1: supposedly some of her best friends yeah which I know if you left with someone I would know immediately you know like (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's just me but
0: (laughs) no I mean you would you would hope that somebody would at least know who who you're going home with and if she said maybe she didn't tell them but if she had said like yeah I'm driving back to my dad's house and she wasn't in the right state of mind to do that you'd hope somebody would speak up right although we'd also don't know she wasn't in the right mind like we, we don't know we don't know what happened and but it's just I think it is significant to say that Julie also is like, kind of questions this night and what happened and thinks it's unclear and also thinks it could be important. Um, There are also, there are reports, like, people do have a name for a guy that they think possibly she went home with, but it's totally unconfirmed. So I just feel like it's unfair to throw his name out there if it's not, like, we don't actually know if she left with someone or who. But if she did, I do kind of think that's important. Maybe, maybe not at all. (laughs) I guess that's Every single thing in this case, right. maybe it's important, maybe it's not at all. But if it if it even has possibility to be, I would. But then I know oh, there's also a question like if there were guests there, you'd think that there would be a record there because they're supposed to be, unless they snuck them in, unless they snuck them in, or unless there is and the police checked it out and they know that there's nothing there, or maybe there is something there and they just haven't said anything because this right. is an ongoing case. Exactly, they could keep it close to the close to the chest. Yeah. Could they could be? Yeah, I don't know. It's mysterious. Like I wish, I wish I knew more about that night and what happened.
1: Yeah, that's like definitely one part of the case that is
0: because you got to keep in mind. Very this unknown, is, like the two nights before she disappeared. So it it is important. Yeah, we just
1: don't know if it does it fit. Who knows?
0: Yeah. Okay, so we're still on Saturday night. This is after this dorm party gathering, whatever the hell it was. So Mara gets in her dad's car outside of the dorm because, remember, she brought his car back to the dorms. Um, So she gets in the car, a new Toyota Corolla. She started driving away from the dorm, and she actually got into an accident on Route 9 in Hadley. So Mara got to a a T-intersection at the exit of the campus where you can either turn left or turn right, but Mara just drove straight and hit a guardrail because there was no street there. So she hit the guardrail, and it caused damage to the car i mean it was about ten thousand dollars worth of damage to the car it wasn't like a minor scratch so at this point it's after 3 a.m and i mean mar has been partying we don't know obviously we don't know if she was drinking how much she was drinking but it was 3 a.m on a saturday well technically sunday morning at this point mm-hmm. so one could infer that she's at least a little intoxicated obviously no evidence but she also did just crash her dad's car all right. So police show up the scene. The car gets towed, and Maura just hitches a ride with the tow truck driver to her dad's motel. He's like, "I'll just, I'll just drop you off at the motel." So she's driving the tow truck. The car gets towed, and Mara did not get charged for drunk driving by the, by the police. Um, the responding officer wrote an accident report, but there wasn't even documentation or of a sobriety field test, and there wasn't any note of drinking. So. I mean, she couldn't have been, like, stumbling. Like, she couldn't have been right. that intoxicated for the police to not even give her a test or, exactly. or write her up. So, you know, take that as, as you will, but she she didn't get in trouble for this, basically, at all. And then there is some discrepancy here on the timeline of Mara coming back to the hotel, and Fred... There's kind of different things. So either the manager informed Fred that his daughter was in the motel and Fred discovered her when he woke up the next morning or Mora was somehow able to get inside her father's room. Fred told police that he did not know Mora was in the hotel until after he woke up in the morning. I think from most of what I've heard and I think from what Julia has said, it sounds like Maura got there and she was able to get in. So she must have just asked somebody like, um, this is my dad. He's in this room. I don't have a key. Please let me in. I guess they let her in. I don't know. She got in and uh Fred didn't realize she was there until he had woken up the next morning. He was in like the next bed in in the room. Um, we do know that there are phone records from this night, and it shows that a phone call was made from Fred's phone to Mora's boyfriend Bill in Oklahoma at around five AM. So it I mean, it would seem to make sense that Mora would be the one using her dad's cell phone to call her boyfriend and basically like oh my god i just went into this accident like i'm so worked up. whatever she wanted to tell him about the terrible night she just had um so that would mean Mora would have had to get into her dad's room to get his cell phone before 5 a.m so she was let in at some point before 5 a.m and julie did kind of clear that up like i said on another podcast where she did say that Mora was let into his room so this is all to say whatever now Mora is in the hotel with fred in the morning she just crashed his car um And then she used his cell phone to call Billy. And I I believe Julie even said her... (laughs) I mean, this was before the time where you have your cell phone on you 24-7. This was 2004. Right. So I believe she left her cell phone in her dorm room. Like, she didn't even take it to go to the hotel that night. So she didn't have her own cell phone. That's why she used her dad's. So then in the morning when Fred woke up, saw more was there, she told him what happened. She basically said, I came around the corner and hit some sand and I skid. And he learned that the extent of the damage to his vehicle. Um, he asked her if she had received a ticket. And when she said no, he said she was lucky that she didn't get a ticket for drunk driving. And Maura replied that she hadn't had a drink in a while and was okay. That's what she told her dad. And then later on in the night, around eight 30 to nine on Sunday. So basically Fred goes back home. I think he got a rental, I believe, cause he still didn't have uh-huh. his car at this point. He drove back home. And then later that night on Sunday, he called Mora and told her that the damage would be covered by his auto insurance. So he asked her if she could get the appropriate accident forms. I guess there's some kind of forms she needed to fill out. Um, So he asked her to get the forms and fill them out um, on Monday at the police department. There is a document that, I guess Fred made a statement to UMass following Morris' disappearance. And he basically sums up everything that happened on that Saturday, like when he was up there buying cars with her and the whole night i'm not gonna read the whole thing it basically is exactly what we just said <laughs> but if you want to check it out yourself he did make a statement about all of this to umass i th- there's also i don't we don't talk about this later so i don't know if it's good to talk about this now but just quickly like a lot of people also question the whole buying a new car thing in the four thousand dollars because when when they went to buy the car he had all the cash on like all cash on him it wasn't like a credit card or a check or anything and it was four thousand dollars worth so there's evidence of him stopping at multiple atms on the way to umass to take out this cash and i think a lot of people think that's sketchy like he went to multiple atms on the way there and got like two hundred dollars here two hundred dollars there instead of just getting four thousand dollars and i mean maybe he had a limit on his on his bank Yeah, I think that's pretty much what it is. Like, Julie's talked about it in some places where she said it was, like, back in 2004, so it wasn't the ATMs that we have now. Something about his bank was weird. Yeah, he couldn't take it all out at It probably would have limited
1: during the day or something, or just, like, shut off.
0: Yeah, I guess so.
1: So he had to go to different And he was there on the weekend, so they wouldn't even be open Sunday, probably.
0: Well, it was Saturday... That He was there, but if
1: it stopped, he wouldn't have been able to go like the next day. Oh, and I it was like saying. a bank,
0: right? Yeah, and she said he was very adamant about having the cash because she said, Cash is king when you're buying a car. Oh, if like, you want to sure. have cash when you're yeah. talking to those
1: people, if the car is 7,000 but you have 4,000 cash, they're gonna right. give you the car,
0: right? And he so. knew that and he was adamant on just having the cash, so that's why he ha- I mean, so a lot of people are like, Why did he go to so many different ones? That's sketchy. Did yeah, I don't find to that tracked. I didn't, I don't really find it that sketchy either. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are like. The sketchiest part is that no one could ever now, like he never said where that $4,000 ever went. Like if Probably back to his on bank him,
1: account. I guess. <laughs> oh, I see. But Or if she had taken it or something.
0: Right. Um, a lot of people think he gave it to her. Be- maybe. So she this- could
1: continue her car search, maybe.
0: Yeah. I think what ended up happening, so they did not get a car that day. And I think what happened, I think according to Julie on a different podcast I heard, that They found a car that they liked and she wanted it, but it was a little bit more money. It was like maybe a few hundred dollars more Mm -hmm. and he just didn't have that cash yet. So he was like, you know what? I'm going to – I'll go get the cash next week and we'll go next weekend and get that car. Right. So I think the plan was to to get it the next weekend because they didn't have enough cash. But long story short, that's another thing that comes up and I – that's an explanation for it is that –
1: Yeah, and I would think if he was coming back up, he would have just kept the money and waited till he came back up. But who knows? Who knows? Yeah. So, day of the disappearance, Monday, February 9th, 2004, is filled with preparation and oddities. It's, it's a little strange looking it's at odd. it. Yeah, it's odd. So, we'll go through the it. The whole you. day is odd. Yeah. Around midnight, Mara uses her computer to map quest directions to the Berkshires in Burlington, Vermont. Two very different places. True. Around 1 p.m. on February 9th, 2004, Mar emails her boyfriend, quote, I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promised to call today, though, end quote. So this might seem odd now, but again, 2004, different world. Different world. Crazy. I mean, That's do you want to have your cell phone point, on you much. every single day? That's 2004 for you. But- <laughs> That's 2000. Classic 2004. <laughs> You'd also, if you had a long-term, or not long-term, long-distance boyfriend, mm-hmm. instead of just texting him a meme to let him know you're having a rough day, you'd email him. Yeah, it's And I don't crazy, even know if yeah. memes existed in 2004. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't. So, wh- what kind of relationship <laughs> was that? <laughs> it's based off
0: lies. It's crazy. all just emails. Yeah, I mean, you have to email him to be like... I
1: can't even imagine. So, again, 2004, different time. Different time, yeah. Now, 1.13 p.m., Mara had a call regarding a condo in Bartlett, New Hampshire. This condo was special to Mara as her and her family often took trips together to New Hampshire and they stayed at this particular condo. From phone records, we know Mara was on the call to inquire about this condo for three minutes. But really, we don't know if Mara actually spoke to someone on the phone. In the end, she did not end up renting the condo. Right after, there's a phone record showing Mara called one of her classmates at UMass and left a voicemail. Apparently, this call was regarding some lab coat that she had borrowed and wanted to give back to her classmate. In one interview, I think it was with Oxygen, the friend stated that the coat wasn't that big of a deal, but Mara left it outside her door before she left. And I think a lot of people use that as like a, oh, she was giving her last possession away. It was a lab coat. It wasn't even like important. It was just like, a, oh, I'm not going to use it. You probably need it. Here you go. Yeah. Just a good person returning something you borrowed. Yeah, you don't want to be in debt to someone, like you still have their coat, you know. Yeah, I don't think it's a weird detail. I would honestly just return it, you know. Yeah. Like, here you go, I just used it. Oh, well. (laughs) Here you go. Thanks. At 124, Mara sent a few emails to professors and her work supervisor stating there had been a death in the family, and she would need to take a leave of absence. However, the Murrays have confirmed that there was no death in the family at that time. Right.
0: So here we go. Now, so we're setting the scene. What's happening? She's emailing her professors, death in the family. I'm researching not Researching two there. different
1: spots and different Clearly, states. Clearly,
0: she's got, at this point, we don't know much, but she's trying to do something, right? She's yeah. She's researching condos, how to get to the... It seems like she's going to be away from school for a little bit. Seems like she's formulating something, right? Yeah. She's formulating something. There was no death, but she said there was. She needs an
1: excuse. To get out of in-person classes. Right. Or clinicals, what have you. Yeah, right. So 2.05 p.m., there's a record of Mara placing a five-minute call to the Stowe Mountain Ski Resort. Stowe Mountain is in Stowe, Vermont. And the resort notes that their phone lines were actually down at the exact same time she placed the call. And they said she would have heard a pre-recording of ski times and other information that was important for their resort. Mara did not end up making a reservation there. But this is the second phone call we know Mar made to inquire about some resort or condo in the north. So it's not crazy to assume that she's starting to look for some place to get away or stay not over crazy. the weekend in fact, or it's the, the most week.
0: Logical conclusion to all of that.
1: Exactly. She.
0: We don't know why or where exactly, but she's trying to go somewhere. Right. We also don't know if she thought this plan up any time before Monday right because this is when everything is happening and
1: what if this is just perfect executed timing and she was actually just inquiring about i don't know a couple months later or on a break you know you have to plan ahead for best pricing <laughs> well maybe she didn't know that <laughs> maybe just 21 that's true so
0: interesting right so later that same afternoon so we're still on monday maura packed some kind of bag with Toiletries, makeup, we do know she brought birth control pills, she had workout attire, textbooks, and some clothes. Um, Not only did she pack a bag, but she also just organized and packed up some of the belongings in her dorm room in general. There's kind of some also different reports on this part of the story too, and it it is weird, I'm not going to lie. So people say she took the artwork off of her dorm walls before she left and she packed that into boxes, and basically put the box on her bed. And that is interesting. Because why would someone take. If this is true. Why would someone take artwork off their dorm walls. Before leaving for a week. Like, Yeah. If, if you're doing that. It's not just because you're going on vacation for a week. Right. I mean whether it's to travel. Or if it actually is a family death. You're not just going to take everything off your wall. So that always kind of stuck out to me. But I, I think there's certain instances. Where this would make sense. Like. I do remember we weren't supposed to hang things in certain areas like, this is kind of a stretch, but like me my freshman year, there was like a boiler pipe running through my room, It was kind of sketchy, but I yeah, remember yeah. like it was they were very much like don't hang anything near that boiler pipe, which <laughs> looking back, you know that's what I- Maybe a little sketch. Yeah, you're one. relying on
1: 20-year-olds to not <laughs> hang something from the yeah, ceiling.
0: because I think we did. I think we hung, like, <laughs> lights from it or something. And at one point, they were like, you got to take those down. We were like, the whole
1: building might yeah. go down.
0: We're like, oh, shit, okay. So we did – yeah, we got in trouble for that. So I don't know. Like, sometimes – maybe it was something that she wasn't supposed to have hung up, right? So maybe she was like, well, I'm gone for a week. If somebody has to come in here and they see it, I'm going to be in trouble kind of right, thing. Right, right. So I'm gonna take it down just so I'm gone. Maybe. I I get that. I don't know. So when her dorm room was later searched, police asserted that she'd packed up somewhere between Sunday night and Monday morning. So somewhere in that time frame that she packed up. And we've seen in some reports and I've heard on some podcasts that on top of the boxes that were kind of packed up on her bed, there was a printed email from her boyfriend, Bill, or it was an email to Bill. uh, It was an email correspondence between them, I guess. And it was indicating trouble in their relationship like it was we don't know exactly what it was about but it was such that is weird issues that to me was always like the oddest thing because yeah. in my head i pictured uh, this is what i pictured she packed up a bunch of shit put it on a box neatly put it on her bed and on top of the box was an email basically saying like there's issues in my relationship and she got out of there that's sketchy why would you ever do that but it turns out that that was kind of a hazy, like, that picture of what I had isn't, like, exactly how it was. Because I did ask Julie about this because I thought this would be an important thing. because it's, I think that would be an important thing. That would really implicate Billy. It, it would also maybe lean towards, you know, maybe she was going through some mental stuff and whatever. Um, so I wanted to see if Julie knew anything more about that. And this was her answer. She said, I think her room was partially unpacked. She, and she also mentioned this when we were questioning her. Mm-hmm. like um, At the end. In the interview she said, Julie had given Mora a jacket for Christmas like that Christmas right before. So two months before she gave her a new jacket.
1: Yeah. And it wasn't just like any jacket from Coles. I think she had gotten it when she was on tour from Korea. Right. So yes, it somewhere. was like a special it was a jacket. a special jacket.
0: And she basically said she'd think she'd, she'd bring that jacket if she was leaving or whatever. And she... The jacket she had given her at Christmas was hanging in the closet with some other clothes. I guess there was some pictures of the dorm room. I, I don't know. But she knows that that jacket was hanging in the closet. So she kind of thought that would be weird because she should bring that. But okay. So Julie goes on to say she had toiletries out. She had some things packed in bags and boxes. The police have not released a photo of the boxes on To her the public. To the public. And she says here in parentheses, I think that it's odd that they won't release it. Mm-hmm. That is a little odd.
1: That is there, That odd. means there must be a clue
0: in that or something. There's something that they want to hold during mm-hmm. their investigation for some reason yep. in that dorm room, which that is really interesting. Julie says she had an old email from Bill stuffed inside a pamphlet of some sort. It wasn't on top of the boxes, as some describe. And um, that that was not... Release the email was never released to the public which is also interesting kind of yeah maybe if that's the thing in the photo that they don't want people to see but it wasn't it wasn't right on top of the boxes like a goodbye note or something yeah. like dramatic like that as i pictured it. she said it basically was stuffed inside of something else julie says maura took her textbooks running shoes toiletries and alcohol with her in the car and she said she also returned cans for a little a little over $3 um, that day on February 9th. Right. And we go into that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little more clarification on okay, the room wasn't completely like packed up neatly, like stowed away
1: with this email on top. It yeah. Was, be- listening to other podcasts, it almost makes it seem like
0: everything yeah, was packed up. Yeah. It yeah, yeah. was just like a box. And in the I was like, well, floor. that's it. Like, sh- sh- you yeah, know, that's all, folks. That's, that's it. That's weird, but. It's not quite like that. It is still odd that she packed up some stuff, but maybe not really. Maybe she was kind of cleaning up. Yeah, maybe it was a box of stuff to give away. Yeah, to get rid of yeah. or stuff that she wanted to th- like go throw away in the trash or like something. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a little weird. And and I guess the things coming off the dorm walls, so we can't confirm. We're not sure about that. But it, it's, it is super interesting that the police have photos, but they don't want to release it. I think so. I wonder. I wonder why. I wonder. All right. So back to the account of what happens that day. Okay. So we're still at Monday. She leaves her dorm room. She stops at an off-campus ATM and withdraws $280, which was actually nearly all the money that she had in her bank account. So it it, it was a lot for her. The ATM footage was actually just released. So you can go see it for yourself. It shows more walking into the ATM and release. It's mm-hmm. it's not. I watched it. It's not. It's actually still shots. It's actually not a video. But it shows – this is the very last footage of her ever that right. day at the ATM. And
1: I remember someone was like, oh, it's weird because her hair was up. But in everything else, it's oh down. My God. Yeah, we were listening to that girl yeah. analyze it. She's like, her hair is up. I was like, listen, how many – I pull my hair up and down probably like 100 times a day. Yeah. It's not weird. I don't think it's weird. The
0: one thing that people do uh, also think is weird from that video is that she's wearing a jacket. And it does kind of seem like it, like an oversized, sporty jacket – and they had showed this video to Julia, I believe, on the Oxygen interview. I and mean, it was, like, the first time she had seen it. Yeah. And she talks about this, like, they showed it to her and she had never seen it before and she was taken aback. Like, she had never seen this video. It's the last video of her sister. And, like, the, her first response was, oh, I've never seen that jacket. That's weird. And so a lot of people were like, oh, what's the jacket? Whose jacket was it was? Oh, my God. Right, Julie's was never seen it. Someone's jacket. And then looking back, Julie's like, I don't really know why I said that. Like, that was just the first thing I... Came to mind. It was yeah. her first time seeing the footage, too. Right. She just wanted to, like, say something. Like, yeah. So, you know, you can analyze that video, but I don't think there's much to take from it. Yeah, I saw the, the stills. So, yeah. I mean, she's alone. She gets what she needs and she leaves is basically the whole thing. So then after the ATM, she goes to Liquors 44, a liquor store in the area, and she purchases $38.31 worth of alcohol. There's a, a photo out there of her receipt that was later found in her car, and the receipt has four lines of redacted information about the item she's purchased. There's a line on the receipt that indicates a 60-cent deposit, and that likely means Mora purchased a 12-pack of something. This is another thing. There's like a million points of the story that are a lot of discrepancies. Mm-hmm. The alcohol is another big thing. There's a lot of discrepancies on. In the oxygen documentary, they stated there were eight vodka wine coolers left over from a 12 pack recovered in the car. So think like Seagrams or some other kind of like wine cooler like that, like the blue. Mm-hmm. Right? I used to like drink those when I was like really fr- They're like so freshly sweet. 21. Oh yeah, my God. <laughs> headache city the next day. Oh, we've come so far. <laughs> yep. Um, so although the other lines are redacted on the receipt, we have seen from a few sources that Maura may have purchased a box of red wine and a bottle of Kahlua. So there's a bunch of different things out there of different reports of what, what she got. However, we confirmed with Julie what Maura had in the car. So in Maura's car, there was a box of Franzi or red wine, the wine coolers and a nip of Bailey's. That's what was found in the car so no full handles of alcohol no full handles of alcohol no i mean there was no full bottle of clue in the car no clue at all in the car it was just a nip of bailey's according to julie also she cleared up this point that i think a lot of other people like don't know or don't quite understand but that box of franzia wine that was definitely in the car when the car was recovered was not purchased that day at the liquor store, like that trip of the liquor store um, that Mora took that day. Yep. She did not purchase the Franzia wine that day. Julie said that Mora had purchased that Franzia boxed wine the Saturday before and that she had just left it in the car. So, and by Saturday before, I mean the Saturday where Fred came up and they went car shopping and they went to dinner and then they went home and shopping. Kate went to the liquor store yep. and then to the dorm party. So, apparently, she bought the boxed wine on Saturday and she just left it in her car like it, it was open she used it but she just left the box wine in her car yep which doesn't go bad yeah i don't think that's weird at all like nope. i've definitely traveled with box wine in my car <laughs> yeah. open which yeah you're probably not supposed to i mean but... as long as it's in the back i think it's, it's maybe right as long as you're not drinking <laughs> yeah, it it's exactly okay. exactly i mean no i think you're actually not supposed to have open
1: alcohol in the car at all I know from wineries that you can have it opened as long as you have the receipt and it's in the very back, like really. The trunk. That's interesting, yeah.
0: that's good to know because I've done that like
1: bottles of wine from winery that I didn't finish. Yeah, just keep like, the receipt what? and put it in your trunk because then they know like you couldn't have been drinking and driving because it's literally in the back. Okay, well, interesting. Well, I'm,
0: I'm glad that we did clear that up with Julie because I think that's something a lot of people don't understand. Yeah, everyone thinks.
1: Like It they was see purchased the open wine. that day yeah. and, she was,
0: and if she purchased it and then was driving to New Hampshire and it was open and someone was drinking, like clearly that would mean she was drinking on the way to New Hampshire, which also we're also not saying she didn't do. Right. We're just saying. Because it was
1: open. Right. So. Looking at the length of time between when Mara left the ATM at 3.15 p.m. and when the liquor store receipt is time stamped at 3.43 p.m., that's about 26 minutes. Good math. Thank you. It was written down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's probably so wrong. Yeah, probably. I never checked it. By the way, total side note. We said, I said, I will take responsibility. I said the wrong president number for Abraham Lincoln in in one of the last episodes about Uh, Mr. Mumler. And literally, I went back because I was like, "What? how did we just screw that up? And it was written correctly on our story. And I no, it wasn't. said it wrong. <gasps> oh, my God. I just said it wrong. <laughs> it was, what, I said 26 and he was yeah. 16, right? Is that right? Yeah. So I literally just read it wrong and I apologize. My father texted me immediately and was like, that's not what Abraham Lincoln was. Nah, 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 nah. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Anyway, my mea culpa. I literally just read it wrong. So, yeah.
1: Okay, but what we're trying to say is the ATM and liquor store were really close in proximity. So there's no way to get from one to the other without getting back on Route 9 and driving. And honestly, you know, roughly 26 minutes isn't super long considering she likely drove from the ATM to Liquors 44 and then spent time. Getting the cans and bottles out of her car and then bringing them to the can redemption and returning them. Right, and you really gotta do that like one can by one can. That takes a little bit. Of time. And it's it's so dumb because when you do it too fast, it'll spit it back out at you. It'll really? like spin. I don't think have ever spit actually. Back. Got oh really? Can return. I, I enjoy doing it because <laughs> I like getting my money back.
0: My favorite hobby.
1: Right. So in Massachusetts, you can redeem, return cans and bottles. Most of them. Sometimes they only say name. You can redeem them at a center like Liquor's 44 for $0.05, cents, which is saying that now. I just said You're I love like, doing oh, it. Yeah.
0: It's $0.05 cents on the can. I still love doing it. I, it's like satisfying,
1: right? It is. It is satisfying. But it's really, it really is time-consuming and annoying because you can't just shove them all in the machine. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, on the receipt... There's a line that says cans bottles, negative 395. So Mara redeemed a total of $3.95, which means she returned 79 cans and bottles one by one. Shit. Roughly. I never even thought about that too much. That's it could have been a little so less if they were 10 cents. Cans. Maybe they were like liters of soda. I yeah, think, I guess or we or don't more, know exactly how much she would have gotten. If it was just
0: five cents. Yeah. that store. Oh, wait, it's like standard, isn't it? I think, yeah.
1: That's so many cans and bottles. Oh, yeah. That's backbreaking work. And it's sticky. You have to bring, what, a whole trash – right? You have to have trash bags. Like- a trash bag, yeah. It all fits in a trash bag, yeah. But that was probably either from a really long time or a party or something. I wonder something. if that's, like – isn't, like, illegal
0: to, like, go around to, like, recycling bins and take cans out and – I don't think it's illegal. I've seen people do it, and they don't get arrested. Maybe she just went around like, "Hey, give me all your empties, because I I go and
1: return them." A yeah, lot of people wouldn't care. I don't know. That seems like a party, because you don't want that. You can't leave that in your dorm room for a long time. It smells.
0: No. So 79 cans.
1: Maybe those were the bottles from the party.
0: That's a lot. Maybe I mean, yeah, it's got to be over some amount of time. Who knows? Then, Maybe she did it for, like, the whole track team or something, right? And they're just like, yeah, just take them. Something like could that. Could have been something like that. I don't know, This is all speculation. And is it important? No, probably not.
1: So after this, she shopped for her items and then checked out at the register. And this is 3.43 p.m. Assuming that the police's redaction on the fourth line is on purpose, it means there's some information they felt the need to withhold. One explanation out there is that two of the items sold were alcohol non-taxable. And one item was non-alcoholic right. and could have been a taxable item. Right. So with regard to non-alcoholic taxable items that one would commonly purchase at a liquor store, of course, of course, the first thing that comes to mind would be cigarettes. Yeah, I guess so. Also, though, I, I think of
0: like limes. Candy. Oh, something. limes. Like I buy like a lime to get in my drinks or,
1: yeah. or chips. They do right? have, yeah, they just have anything there Anything that's food or anything that's not liquor,
0: I guess. Well,
1: yeah. It did always seem like there was some contradicting info about the alcohol purchased and found, and there has been a lot of incorrect information out there. So we asked Julie about it, and she suggested that likely the redacted items on the receipt is because the police didn't want everyone to know exactly what alcohol was on Mar at the time of the accident. So someone, some random person can't just come forward and say, oh, hey, you know, I found a black sports bag full of the exact liquor. It's now laying in the woods. Go check it out. What a coincidence. So this kind of remains a piece that they could hold on to. So if the killer came forward or backpack came forward, they would know exactly this is her backpack or, oh, no, you found like this, this and this. That wasn't on the receipt. They couldn't have been her backpack. Right. So that seems like a pretty logical answer of why they would have redacted that information. According to authority, she departed the Amherst-Hadley, Massachusetts area around 4.30 p.m. and drove her 1996 Saturn north towards New Hampshire. She did not tell anyone what her plans were or why she was heading to New Hampshire on that Monday afternoon. She checked her voicemail at 4.37 p.m., and that is the last recorded use of her cell phone. So this is the route. You go up I-91 from UMass north, it's pretty much a straight shot up to Haverhill, New Hampshire. Yeah. This is to the the crash scene. We don't
0: yeah. know where she was ultimately going, but the route to the crash scene.
1: Right. And then you head east on 302 to Route 112, and there's a tiny little section of Route 112 in Haverhill, and that's where the accident happens. The car was headed east on Route 112, and obviously we can't tell again like where she was headed, but if you look at the map... The route's heading towards the middle or eastern New Hampshire, maybe near the White Mountains.
0: Correct. Yeah, I mean it's heading basically going up New Hampshire and heading east. Um, so, yeah, can't. I mean, you don't know exactly
1: where she's going, but I mean, you know where the route was. So, right and yeah, right. It's important to know right before we get into the accident. Mar stops at a gas station where she gets off the highway for a brief period of time. She fills her car with gas and then hops back onto. Route 112. At this point,
0: Maura is driving on Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. Somehow, Maura spins out, and her car ends up in a ditch facing west in the eastbound lane. So she's all turned around. The location of the crash is at a sharp-ish, it's pretty sharp turn. It's pretty sharp, yeah. Right next to what's called the Weathered Barn. If you go on Google Maps and look at look up the Weathered Barn in Haverhill, New Hampshire, it'll bring you right to that corner where her crash happened, um, and you'll see the turn we're talking about. It is pretty sharp. It's like almost
1: especially well, especially if you don't degrees, drive but, it every
0: day. And at night, I mean, there's so many. We're gonna get into it, but you don't drive it every day. It's uh-huh. at night. I yep. mean, there's some snow on the ground. I'm assuming that the street is cleared, but. You know, and you're working with a car that apparently doesn't work well. Right, right. Who knows? And if you do look it up on Google Maps, you'll also see a tree there with a blue ribbon that we're definitely going to talk more about in part two. But that is to signify the spot of the accident.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: All right. So now we're going to get into what happens right after the accident and the 911 calls. So at 7.27 p.m., 911 operators received a call from Faith Westman a resident of Haverhill, New Hampshire. Faith was calling to report that there had been an accident near her home and that a car was stuck in a ditch from what she could see. The Westman call lasted approximately one minute and 18 seconds. So there, there is a transcript of this 911 call, and there's also like a, a narrative from the 911 log that was basically like the operator's summary of the call that happened that night. So this is from the narrative. This is what the 911 operator said happened in that call. At 1927, Faith Westman called to advise of a vehicle in the ditch right on a sharp turn after the weathered barn, unknown if person injured, but can see a man in the vehicle smoking a cigarette, was eastbound Route 112, but ended up in westbound ditch facing westbound. And that, that's the earliest report by Westman. And it is significant to say that she did say on the call right after this happened that she saw a man in the vehicle smoking a cigarette. That was her words. But in later interviews, Faith would kind of change her story slightly and basically say, well, she wasn't positive it was a man she saw in the vehicle. And she wasn't positive it was a cigarette. Basically, she said that she saw a little red light and she assumed that was a cigarette but she was like, it could have been a cell phone. It could have, she was like, I really don't know what it was. I just saw a little red light. And so I just assumed it was a cigarette. And that's what I said to the 911 operator. That was Faith's 911 call, Faith Westman. And then this is the second call at, well, at 7.30 PM, a bus driver named Butch Atwood drove by and spoke to Mora. He saw her on the side of the road. He offered her help and asked if she needed him to call the police. According to Atwood, Mara declined, and she said she already called AAA, so please do not call the police, is what she told him. And then Atwood immediately thought that that was odd, because he knew that there was no cell phone service at that location. And that's something that's come up again and again, is that people say there's no cell phone service there. So he was like, well, that's weird, I don't know how she called AAA, but he he said to her, okay, he left He drove home, which is right down the road. It's about 100 yards east of the accident. He parked his bus, and he went inside to call the police. Um, His call to 911 was placed at 742. So this is after the Westman call, and his call lasted about three minutes. There's another transcript of that, so you guys can read it, but this is what was taken from the 911 log narrative regarding Butch Atwood's call. Hanover Dispatch called to advise, got a 911 call for us. 911 advised all circuits busy is for ten five. I don't know what that means. Caller Butch Atwood, they advised one female, no persons injured, but shook up. Called the Atwood residence. Woman advised her husband saw the crash and came here to call, but no idea where the female is. In Atwood's first call, he basically said, you got a single car motor vehicle accident. He hit a pine tree, an airbag deployed. Atwood later said a single female, so when he said he here, he could have just kind of misspoken or it could have been a glitch because he did say that he saw a female. There's no reference from Atwood about the driver slurring her words or having to lean while she was speaking with him. There's no reference to alcohol at all. There's no description of the driver at all. The information Atwood communicated in the 911 call at 742 is likely what prompted fire and EMS to be dispatched at... 7.42 p.m., which was about 15 minutes after Westman's call to the Grafton County Dispatch.
1: By the time the first officer arrived on scene at 7.46 p.m., Mara was gone. The officer noted that the car had been locked. There was a box of red wine behind the driver's seat, as well as stains on the ceiling and door, and a Coke bottle that appeared to have some sort of red liquid in it. The officer also noted that there appeared to be a rag stuffed in Mars tailpipe, which we will come back to. There's a police report written by a state trooper who responded to the Haverhill PD dispatch and arrived at the scene of the crash that night. We wanted to read a few lines from this police report just to give some context. So this is from Trooper John Monaghan, and it's the New Hampshire Police Report. So this is coming from the investigation report on 2904, approximately 1930 hours. I heard Haverhill PD get dispatched to a single motor vehicle collision on Route 112 near the Weathered Barn. Sergeant Cecil Smith responded, I overheard Grafton co-dispatch relay that the reporting party could see a female, single female, in the driver's seat smoking a cigarette. I responded from Route 302, Lisbon. While en route, I heard Sergeant Smith sign off and a short time later, the Woodsville Fire and Rescue. Sergeant Smith reported the female was no longer with the vehicle. Responding units began to look for a female on foot. I traveled route 302 to route 112. When I reached 112, I saw a dark colored Subaru sedan at the junction with 302. I asked the female driver who I did not identify if she had seen a person on foot as she traveled the road. She said she had not. I continued up 112 with my spotlight on, checking the roadside as I went, but I did not see any evidence of foot travel on the road or the shoulder. When I entered into Swiftwater Village, I saw a female known to me as Wilma Robinson. Robinson was on foot. I asked her if she had seen anyone walking. She told me she had not. She had just come from Stage Stop Store Route 112. She further advised that no one had been in the store while she was there. She told me, "Bill, the store store owner was closing up."
0: Yeah, there's there's a little bit more, but mostly it's just this guy saying like he 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 checked around, he drove around, he didn't see anyone, no one had any reports of anyone being seen, so he just kind of drove around the area um, to see if he could find anyone, and he did not. He said, "I did not see anyone on foot, nor did I note any track on the road or leaving the roadway. I cleared the scene." So there's, there's a separate report. It's not so much the police report, but it's an, like an accident report. So it's really kind of honing in on the, the scene and describing the accident. And I thought it was a little interesting. It's basically someone drew out the scene. So they drew out where the road is, where the car ended up. It looks
1: like what you'd see on like an insurance report.
0: Yeah, I think that's kind of what it is. Oh. Um, I don't know. And... They drew, like, where the tire impressions were in the snow, where the vehicle was at final rest. Um, and they had a little bit of a write-up about the accident. So this is just basically confirming that he found the above vehicle parked facing west in the eastbound lane off Wilds and Road. But that's Route 112. The vehicle was locked and there was no one in the area. I spoke to a witness who told me there was a young female behind the wheel and there was no other people in the vehicle. Spoke with the female who told him not to call police. So he's not naming Bajatwood here, but that's who he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Evidence at the scene indicated the vehicle had been eastbound and had gone off the roadway, struck some trees, spun around, and came to rest facing the wrong way in the eastbound lane. The driver's side of the windshield was cracked and both front airbags had been deployed. In plain sight behind the driver's seat of the vehicle, I could see a box of Franzia wine. I could also see red liquid in the driver's side door and ceiling of the car. I made a search of the roadway in the area of the accident. I was assisted by fire, EMS personnel, and a resident of the area. The driver was not located. A later search of the vehicle indicated the driver was Maura Murray. When the vehicle was towed from the scene at or by the towing people, I recovered a Coke bottle that contained a red liquid with a strong alcoholic odor. That's the end. Don't think we know who actually wrote that, but
1: it was an officer in the accident report. So that's just describing the accident scene a little bit more. The officer asked for assistance locating Mar and suggested he drive west of the accident scene and search some of the roads in the French Pond area. A state trooper also responded to the scene and searched the roads west of the accident site. Fire and EMS also responded to the scene. EMS was dismissed within minutes because there was no one at the scene treat. The eight firefighters briefly searched the accident scene before proceeding back west and returning to the fire station. As far as anyone is aware, no one searched east of the accident scene. The bus driver's brief interaction with Mar was the last known sighting. The blue eyed, brown haired woman, about five foot seven, was last seen in jeans and a dark colored shirt. Since that night, there have been no trace of her and no activity on her cell phone or bank accounts.
0: Basically, we don't actually know why the car crashed, right? I mean, we read the accident report and we know how it ended up. It does claim that she hit some trees. The accident report says that. I think that almost was more just like an assumption because there's trees right there. I don't know if she actually hit the trees. Right, because her car was like in the trees. Right. But the photo of the damage is interesting. Yeah, and we're definitely going to talk about that more in part two, about the damage to the car and how it's a little inconsistent. I think I just want to put this in here because we did ask Julie about if, if she had any more info of, like, why the car crashed. Mm-hmm. If, if it was something to do with the car itself or if right. she hit something, if she if she knew. And Julie's response was this. It is not clear what caused the damage to the Saturn or how, why Mora crashed. The way the car was found sort of parked off the side of the road in the opposite lane facing the wrong way is baffling. There weren't any skid marks in the road. Both airbags deployed, and the driver's side windshield was cracked. The car was supposedly locked when Cecil Smith arrived. The black box report from the car confirms it was only involved in one collision, but it doesn't provide a timestamp. It is very strange, mm-hmm. is what Julie said. So she doesn't really have any more info on why it happened either. But yeah, I, I, that part I didn't know. That was kind of new to me. That the so the black box report is like the thing. Have you ever heard of that? I've recently yeah, heard of that. Yeah, you're like
1: cars. Box of your car's car's record box, yeah, black box. It's like painted black. It's what it says it is. It's (laughs) a black
0: box. Yeah, I don't know. It like keeps info from. It's like a stored memory, I guess, of your car. I don't know. I'm not a mechanic, but I didn't realize that we knew the black box report did. It did have evidence of a collision, but it doesn't provide a timestamp. So right, because it probably would have like triggered that the airbags went off. Right.
1: So something triggered it. And that's basically all we know about that. All right. This was long. Oof. But just a reminder, we're breaking this case up into three parts. Part one is what happened right up to Mars' disappearance. So the accident. Part two. Next episode, we'll be discussing the crime scene, what happened afterwards, and some theories or conspiracies or thoughts that we maybe break down Possibly. for you debunk maybe a couple mm-hmm. work we work through them yeah you yep we just provide the evidence that we found so then part three we'll be interviewing julie murray mara murray's sister
0: yes all right wow yeah there was a lot in that one but i think that was good i'm excited to jump into part two yes with everyone mm-hmm. um stay tuned If if you guys have like actual like questions or comments or you think anything was inaccurate which you know, let's just say up front, that's totally possible. Um, yep. We're not claiming to have the exact right story. We did try to clear things up with Julie. But if anyone knows something we said is wrong, reach out to us. Um, have
1: specific questions, reach out to us. But yep. And you can that's... email us, killerbabespodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook, killerbabespodcast. And Twitter, killerbabespod. So with that, we'll see you for part two. Stay tuned. Next Tuesday next week. See you there. Bye.
0: Bye.